Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Faith here with your podcast, Welcome Toast. It was Mitch Hedberg who said, I like buying snacks from a vending machine because food is better when it falls. Sometimes at a grocery store, I'll drop a candy bar on the floor so it achieves its maximum flavor. Listen to our show in small bites or enjoy the whole thing. I got that sunshine in my pocket. Got that good soul in my feet. I feel that hot blood in my body when it drops. It's great to have you joining the party on the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze, inviting you to eat, drink, and be merry with us. What a show we have planned for you. The best tips to know about cooking and eating corn on the cob. Uh, a funny play about a chef is at Theater Works in Hartford. The Raging Skillet will meet the real chef on the show today, Rossi. It's her story. And it's National Rum Day, people. We're going to whip up a cocktail you better we are. We're here to assist you in having a good time and to celebrate the people, places, and food makers that we discover so you can too. My treasured food buddies are here. Senior contributors Chris Brasberry, Alex Province, Mark Raymond, senior producer Robin Doyen Aiken, and special guest Bailey Pryor. Hey, everybody. Hello. Hey, Bailey is representing Real McCoy Spirits, and they make some amazing rum. And so we're excited to have you back on the show. Thanks, Faith. It's great to be here. And it is National Rum Day, yes, so it's, this is yes. perfect. You know that I love tiki culture. Yes, you're a tiki fan. I know that. I, I've been one for 42 years. <laughs> I will drive anywhere. 150 miles if you tell me Where's there's the a tremendous <laughs> tiki cocktail marker somewhere. So I'm serious about it, and it also, it just lights up my life. I think it's so much fun, this tiki stuff. She has a tiki bar at her house. Yes. Nice. <laughs> nice. She doesn't have okay. to drive far. <laughs> tiki is so much fun. I mean, it's such a great culture in America, and, you know, it's a truly American thing. It started in the 1930s, and uh, today it's, it's actually huge. There's a giant festival happening in San Diego next week called Tiki Oasis. It's basically Comic-Con for tiki fans. So uh-huh. thousands of people show up all dressed I up in crazy tiki costumes and so cocktails. I'm so upset that I'm not there great. this time. Yeah. I don't. <laughs> it is um, cool. We have a cocktail posted mm. on our website, and it's the one we're sipping right now. It is made with your real McCoy rum. Yes, our three-year rum. Okay, and you created this cocktail in honor of National Rum Day on August 16th. Yes, but also Tell- in honor of you. So we named it. <laughs> we named the cocktail Faith in Tiki. That's the oh. name of the cocktail. Oh, I am so honored. Faith in Tiki. This is so delicious. This is going to sound self-serving now because it is one of the great cocktails I have had in a decade. Thank you so much for the honor of the name, but also the craft of making this cocktail. It's extraordinary. The recipe's on our website, foodschmooze.org. People, this one you have to make, and I swear it has nothing to do with the name. we got to get bars to make it. If you're a rum fan, there are all kinds of rums, and they come from all kinds of places. The real McCoy rum really is, um, and not because Bailey is here. We asked Bailey here mm-hmm. because we're a fan of the rum that they make in Connecticut. Thank you. It is handcrafted. Right. There is no junk in it. 
Well, what does your, your rum maker say, your spirit maker? Well, our tradition with this rum is that we wanted to honor the history of Bill McCoy, who was the first rum runner of the Prohibition era. And he's the reason why we all know the term the real McCoy. He was the first one to fill up a boat full of rum down in the Caribbean in January of 1920. Mm-hmm. He sailed it up to New York City, Montauk. Block Island, Fisher's Island, places like that, and sold it three miles offshore. And he never, and that was not illegal because in, <laughs> wow, in 1920, genius. three miles out was international waters. Today it's 200 miles out because what of McCoy. But back then he could do it totally that legally. That's amazing. Yeah. So what, what a story. great history to have attached to your rum. But your rum is so delicious and you make various ones. We do. But would you tell us? Because mm-hmm. we were dazzled by this thing. Mm-hmm. What is in here? Well, the core ingredients are our three-year rum. So it's aged three years in American oak bourbon barrels, the real McCoy three-year. And then we also put velvet falernum in there. And velvet falernum is also a product that's made on the base of our three-year rum. And so our master distiller, Richard Seal, uses a proprietary blend of spices Mm. and sweeteners, and he makes this lovely liqueur. It's about 11% alcohol, and it's called Velvet Falernum. It's very well-known within the bartender community. It's often used as a very secret little ingredient in a lot of cocktails, but you can buy it at liquor stores, too. what does it do for a cocktail? Uh, It it adds a nice sweetness to the cocktail and also some Bajan spice, so some Barbados spicing. So you have some really nice sort of cinnamon, allspice, and things like that. So that's where I'm getting that little nutmeggy, allspicy thing. Yes. Okay. Yes. What else is in here besides your rum, sure. your, your falernum? The next thing we put in there is we're, we're big fans of the ripe juice that's made here in Connecticut. They make a blend of juices called the Bajan Punch. Based on those uh, ba- Based on those spices and the tropical fruits that would be in bar- a place like Barbados. And the reason why they call it Bajan Punch is because the word Bajan, B-A-J-A-N, is a nickname for people in Barbados who are on island time who are cool and relaxed. You're Bajan, <laughs> you know? So it's a very nice, like, relaxing kind of cocktail drink. You're Bajan, you know, man. You're a Bajan. Mom, I want to be on island time. <laughs> exactly. So just have one of these cocktails I'm and you'll immediately there. be on island time. I think we yes. are on island time. As um, and then, are there any bitters We in do a tiki bitters in there as well. And tiki bitters are lots of fun because they're highly secret. There's great competition between different bitter makers. And in this case, we're using the Fee Brothers. And we, mm. we sometimes use Fentimins as well, both make really Both great very good and are we at the end of the ingredients no we or? have one more the the uh the final component is the um, garnish which in this case are two of the original luxardo cherries so the beautiful luxardo cherries which are the best cherry yeah. cherries yeah. in the world for cocktails and honestly they like are they they're are expensive so they're not i'm not going to pretend about that <laughs> The last time I went to shop for them, the price was mm. too dear for me. So I, I didn't do it because I'm not buying it wholesale the good. way people are. So I understand if oh, you wow. say, but if you are a cocktail lover and you want to invest in this, mm-hmm. they also are tremendous in a gin and tonic oh, yeah. or a vodka tonic with a mm-hmm. little uh, dash of the syrup in the jar of mm-hmm. these Luxardo cherries. And they're, they're made with such care. Mm-hmm. They're so crazy delicious. When a bar has these... I know they're serious about cocktail making. And you can always tell they're the real ones because they're not that bright iridescent pink color <laughs> yeah. that you see for the, the cheap like cherries. These are cherry. very dark colored, so you can yeah. spot them across the bar. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sure. the honor of this cocktail and for being such a, a craftsman in making this. Thank really you. so appreciate it. Absolutely delicious. It is up right now, Faith in Tiki at foodschmooze.org. And we have pictures of all the bottles that Bailey mm. just used all the products to make all this, the various rums. Bailey, I want to come back to your uh, rum stuff. We're going to keep going with our little tiki celebration here on the show. But everybody, 
are you finding this? I, I'm crazy about corn. I'm practically pacing up and down because the corn is late. Yeah. I live both in Connecticut mm-hmm. and on, on the east end of Long Island. And in both places, the corn is late. Are you all finding that? Yes. Mm-hmm. And are you just craving? We're, we're starting to get some now. and Nothing better yeah. than local Where? fresh uh, corn. Young's Farm has some early stuff, and it is really good. Oh, so wow. Wait, okay. Just wait. This year is a good year for corn. Is it? Yeah. yeah. Worth the wait. What it's does that so mean to sweet. you? Sweet. Oh, that's it what I'm waiting so for. so sweet. Oh, my God. Two years a day right now. Oh, so, yeah. It's like a habit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I take, you know, and, and one of my guys taught me this. He just puts it in the oven with a little bit of salt. He takes it out of the husk, yeah. puts it on a little cookie sheet, a little bit of salt on it, and that's it, and he roasts it. No butter? No oh. butter, nothing. You put butter afterwards. But just in the oven like that, and it gets nice and charred after about 15 minutes, and then you just eat it right off the cob. So oh, I want to give you a couple of tips. Uh, we did some other tips from them, Cooks Illustrated, before. They did a little section on corn I thought was so good. They did a, a page called Fact or Myth, so we could play this game. Yes. But we told you last time about the easiest way to shuck. I love that now. this now. is this is something that I have believed my whole corn cooking life. When corn in a frozen bag from the supermarket has no flavor, I think, and so I put it in milk, and I think it, it sugars up the corn a little bit, and it tastes kind of real. So saucepan and milk. Yeah. And so some people will even cook their fresh corn out of the garden in a, with a little milk in the boiling water. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. So they did fact and myth, and they said, that's a myth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, not a, not um, enough sugar. In they I'm did trying all these now. taste tests mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. said, no, no, no. It doesn't do a darn thing. So I swear that it does in frozen corn because I think the milk sugars it. Mm -hmm. But they say no, at least with fresh corn, it Mm -hmm. doesn't do anything. So there you go. That was I was a little sad to find that out. Go ahead. I have one. This is something I do every year. And I always say in the middle of the winter, I didn't do enough. Whenever I get corn, I take six ears, put them aside. And after I'm done eating corn, I strip the kernels off and I make my own frozen corn and then I have it all winter long and then you never have that problem of that frozen corn not tasting good because the frozen corn you have in your freezer is the stuff that you had that summer and if you do Mm. it in the middle of February and you're having like a corn soup made with that corn it brings you right back to summer I'm still a huge believer I see everyone at the grocery store like pulling the husks off corn I think you're supposed to take the corn with the husk, you soak it in some water, or if you're at the beach, in the salt water, and you roast it with the husk on, and then the husk gets all charred and blackened, and then you peel it back, and you have this beautifully steamed corn underneath. People all have their own different way of doing it. Some people strip it. Some people do what you do, Alex, Mm -hmm. and gives it that nice smoky kind of feeling Mm -hmm. and steams it, and so it's kind of gently and charred. No wrong way. (laughs) No. Just yeah. eat corn. Yeah. <laughs> this time of year, just eat fresh so corn. So Matt was saying he, he was cutting the corn off the cob yeah. without cooking. And it's the corn has that we've had so far has been so sweet, we're eating it even yeah. without cooking, cooking it. it. You don't have to. You can just eat it raw like that. It's so good. So I have a friend that actually takes that husk. He peels it back a little bit, butters up the corn, oh. puts the husk, puts a little cilantro in there, yeah, yeah. and then puts the husk really? back on and then throws it on the grill. 
And then you actually get like buttered already charred spots. Mark, who is that? (laughs) My friend Dave Werzer, and he does it down at his lake cottage in uh, Dave. Now, if I recall, Dave is the one who pulled out quite a snazzy bottle of wine for your hamburger. Yes, he is. He's a. I think we need to have Dave on the show with a bottle of wine. And we're gonna we'll provide the burgers, and Dave (laughs) will provide the wine. Okay, there we go. So here's the thing I wanted to tell you about that Cooks Illustrated said: if you want to make a beautiful corn soup. The way to do this is I throw my corn cobs away. What am I going to do with them? And especially if you have dogs around, you don't want them. Alex, you gave us that tip last time. It can kill a dog. So don't let them anywhere near that. But I throw them out. They said, no, no, no. They said, put those cobs into some boiling water. Uh Cut the cobs into uh, quarters, put them in a saucepan with a couple quarts of water, simmer them, and cook them for about 15 minutes, then strain it. That liquid is the base, the stock. You've got corn stock, Mm. and when you add... If you do cream or you just yeah. do the corn Thicken itself it or, corn starch. or you want to put mm-hmm. clams in to make a clam corn chowder. Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. The difference in taste. This is what four- and five-star restaurants do. Oh, my God. Do. We do exactly that. And then right before we put it on the stove, we take our Parmesan rinds that we've been saving and we throw yeah. that in, too. So we make a Parmesan corn stock and then make a corn soup out of that. And oh, oh my God. At the restaurant? It, yeah, because it gives a little salt. Because we make, we use so much corn. We're making that corn stock every single day now. Can I say one minute? Have you reminded Ooh, me? I have so one more thing. If you are cutting the, the kernels off yeah. the, the cob, whether they're cooked or uncooked, I don't do this. I cut just the tips off so that it stands up straight. And then you've got this long cob, and I'm being careful with my fingers. They said, don't do that. Cut the cob in half Mm -hmm. and then use the shorter thing. They won't fly all over Mm -hmm. the place. And it's just lay down on the cutting board and cut it and turn it as you cut it. It's the easiest way to do it. So Why I haven't say, I been doing that? I know. <laughs> it makes sense. Yeah, you don't think about it because you automatically grab it by the top or the bottom and go down mm-hmm. instead of laying it down, cutting it into smaller pieces and going around it. Chris, I thought of you the other day. Big Y had the um, they had the yeah. old fashioned nineteen seventies. Oh, like, yes, we had oh, oh, the corn, corn holders. Remember oh, yeah. two ninety eight. When we were kids, we each had our own little <laughs> shaper thing of that. Oh yeah, the prongs. Yeah, the, yeah, the little prongs. Yeah, yeah, and the, some of them with were the like cornier. Cor- yeah, some of them were cornier. Some of them were little cars. We each had our yeah, own lobsters. Yeah, like little lobsters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> I have little corn cob shaped plates, little plastic corn plates. Cob. Yeah. Oh, that's I cool. use them for banana splits too. They work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at, at my house growing up, you knew it was summer because my mom always had the butter dish, and it had like the oh, corn. The corn. Divot. Oh, it had, yeah. The, it had the corn divot in With it. Some of the silk yeah. still, yeah, still in it. Still silk in it. <laughs> and that Absolutely. was always left out on the counter. You knew it was summer because you open up uh, the lid to maybe put some butter on your bread, and it's like you. It had the corn sauce on it and a divot in the middle of it. I know. You Uh, see a lot more restaurants doing the Mexican street corn. Oh, that's good. Do you see that on the menu? I love that. I was just at Noah's, not the one in Stonington, Connecticut, but the one in Greenport, New York, on the east end of Long Island. And they had, as an appetizer, they had Mexican street corn on the menu. They cut it up in quarters and give you a beautiful array of it with a queso fresco cheese on it and a little bit of spice and it was really delicious. I had a great meal at Noah's in, in Greenport. So you can make your own chili lime salt if you want to do something fancy. You can flavor your butter for your corn. Or you can do it the classic way. Just a little butter, maybe a little salt, and you're good to go. Mm, sometimes it's I simple. can't wait. Best. 
Does anybody have a theory about why, when I was at Noah's, I had a steak, a delicious hanger steak. Does anybody have a theory about why corn goes so well with steak? Why uh, is sweet that? Sweet and savory, right? It's like steak yeah. and potatoes, I yeah. guess. Is Mashed it because it's a corn. starch? Mashed potatoes and corn. It's got to be the starch connection. I just a bite of mashed man. potato with a few kernels of corn in it. I don't know. Corn oh, and I would anything. always take my mashed gravy. potatoes and corn and just mix, mix them together. together yeah. oh, and pour so you get little bits. <gasps> Absolutely. That way you get a little Can bit you of... really taste the corn that way? Oh, yeah. yeah. And sun, that's how you butter your corn because your corn. mashed potatoes are butter. Is that, is that <laughs> yeah. true? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, there's yeah. a lot of butter yeah. in my mashed potatoes. Yeah. That's so I, I promise you we're coming back to National Rum Day, which is August 16th. In our next segment, and later on in the show, we have um, someone who has done the best food memoir. Honestly, it is so fantastic, and it's been made into a play that is at Theater Works in Hartford. It's called Raging Skillet, the name of the memoir and the play. So we're going to tell you all about that. We're going to meet the person, Rossi, she has one name. We're going to meet the person on whom this story is based. It's really a funny book, really interesting about how somebody gets started in the food world, especially a woman who's kind of out there. She's really <laughs> I can't wait to meet her. Okay, but National Rum Day continues, and uh, we have a wine to tell you about. More mouth-watering conversation and fun ahead on the Faith Middleton Food Schmooze. We're glad you have a seat at the table. I hope you will make a charitable contribution to Feed the Hungry. We're online now at foodschmooze.org, and we'll be right back. Will his love be like his rum? Yes, it will. Yes, it will. Intoxicating all night long. Yes, it will. Yes, it will. Cornbread said, now that's all right. Beans. Meet me on the corner tomorrow night. Beans. I'll be ready. I'll be ready tomorrow night. Oh, boy. Listen, sign up for our free podcast, and you can listen on your schedule. That's the value of a podcast. You just go to our website, foodschmooze.org. You sign up just once, and it arrives to you. It's how all of us listen. Mm-hmm. I am with my treasured food buddies, Chris Prosperi. You can tell I'm in love, right? Everybody can tell. (laughs) Chris Prosperi, chef and co-owner of Metro Beast Restaurant in Simsbury, Connecticut. Wine broker Alex Province in Hartford. Mark Raymond, our wine broker in Wethersfield. Robin Doyen Aiken is the senior producer. And we have a special guest, Bailey Pryor from Real McCoy Rum right here in Connecticut. And he's the co-founder of this company, beautiful beautiful rum that they make and we have him here he's back again because it is national rum day on august 16th robin told us that and we said oh (laughs) thanks robin (laughs) that is a very serious responsibility how to keep your food holidays straight i want to also thank uh, bailey again for creating this cocktail that i'm sipping that is called faith 
in tiki, and it is wildly delicious. I have nothing to do with it except to be honored by having the name. Bailey and his team created this recipe, and it is one of the best cocktails I think I've ever had. Thank you. It's at foodschmooze.org. What, Four Chris? or maybe five yummies. What's that? Oh, a yeah. scale? Yeah, yeah. Five, definitely five, five, that five stars. A yummy five scale? Yeah, I have, a, I have a yummy <laughs> scale. That would definitely that would clean house yummy. at the, uh, the martini contest. That would totally that would at our past martini contest. That would yeah. be a top winner. Now, I'm going to do one thing before the rum starts, because I thought, where in the heck did rum come from what do we need to know to appreciate good rum should we use good rum in a cocktail does it really make a difference and i'm not talking about what's what's in the interest of the maker (laughs) sorry bailey no it's true you know we'd be really fun to get into some of this stuff and don't forget at the end of the show we have an extraordinary woman who is so funny and so is her memoir the raging skillet and there's a play about it at uh, Theater Works in Hartford, and it's a hit. If you know what it's like to grow up in an Orthodox Jewish home at the dawning of the microwave, and oh my goodness, it is really quite a story. We're going to jump quickly into a wine because we always like to have one on the show. This is from San Mateo, the maker, and it is called Gavi. It is from a protected region of Italy, meaning it uses a Cortese grape, but it also means it has to be made in a traditional way. It's from one of my favorite places in Italy, the Piemonte region, which is still the real Italy. So gavis are fun because they're inexpensive. So this is one of those wines that you would have on a weeknight. It's $12. You would have it with some antipasti. You might have it with like some grilled N- nothing. fish. Nothing. You might have it with nothing. You might have Just it as an antipasti. Mark, to, to Mark Raymond, also our wine guy. Gavi, to me, has always been one of those refreshing, crisp wines that you have with two dishes I always think to pair with this. Linguine white clam sauce oh, that's and one. shrimp piccata. Whenever I'm having those two dishes, I always look to serve it with gavi. And can I say that this is a great wine to go with pesto? Oh, yeah. Pesto turns out to be a pretty difficult thing to match up Mm -hmm. with in terms of wine in the way that asparagus also can be or uh, artichoke. It's a little tricky, and you're always wanting a dry white wine. This is a wine that I would just so enjoy with pesto. If you're someone who's got the basil pumping up in the garden and you want to have a good pesto. Perfect time of year for that. Yeah. If you're a Pinot Grigio drinker but want something that's well-made, comes from a smaller appellation. A little more more floral character to it, I think, than Pinot Minerality. Yeah, I mean, so if you like that kind of crisp style wine, this would be like a no-brainer. So this growing region gets really slammed with all these little microclimates. The weather's constantly changing because of them. That can do interesting things to wine. You can get a lot of variety from a small territory, right? Lots of different flavor profiles are coming out of very, very neighboring uh, Exactly. uh, That's why wine is exciting. Then it's a recipe. These grape growers have learned from their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, and this is what they're like genetically made to do is make wine. And so this wine is uh, around, what did we say, $12? $12. So this is a good weeknight price for people. We like it for that. This is a wine that's made in a real way. Mm. Bailey, you know about all the crazy thousands of additives that can be in a wine. Absolutely. A place like this, this is real wine. Especially in the large volume wines, there are quite a bit of additives that can be put in there. People use clarifying agents. They use sweeteners. They use uh, propylene glycol, which gives a mouthfeel to it. It, It's very, very interesting what some of the bigger brands end up doing. And, And when you can find a nice wine like this, 
it's quite dry. I thought it was very enjoyable, but you also got a sense of sort of the location. I mean, to me, it just mm-hmm. tasted like a, a warm day, you know, in Italy. It was wonderful. Here's another thing. If you're someone who likes to do this, and I do any time of year, take a baguette, brush some olive oil, maybe rub a little garlic on it, mm. slap on a particularly beautiful cheese oh, and yeah. run it under the broiler or in the grill for just a couple of minutes. With this wine, yeah. that would be fantastic. And, and I'm absolutely. thinking fresh tomatoes, some mozzarella, mm, yes. a little olive oil, a little, little balsamic, basil, some basil, fresh basil, oh, some salt. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. so Outside. On, $12. All we need now is opera. Yeah. org. We have a picture of the label. We tell you the price and what to say at your wine store. It's San Mateo. That's the name of the vineyard. They're Gavi. It's 100% Cortese grapes, high minerality, very acidic, delicious, dry, white wine, and really a bargain. Okay. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, guys. Back to Bailey Pryor as we celebrate National Rum Day, everybody. Um, I'm taking a sip of Mm. the Faith antiki cocktail yes. that they yes. just made for for us uh, here on the Food Schmooze, and it's on the website, foodschmooze.org. Bailey, how did rum come to be? Well, rum has an amazing history, and it goes back about 5,000 years, actually. The uh, When the still was originally invented in the Middle East, it was used mm-hmm. to create essences. So they were making perfumes. And so there was a lot of natural uh, existing sugarcane in in East Asia, and the still kind of made its way across to East Asia. And that's the first known time about four to 5,000 years ago is when people were distilling cane spirit. And it became very popular. Did you say they were making perfume? Perfumes in the Middle East, that's what the device was created for. It's kind of oh, ironic. The device, that, I see. Because mm-hmm. people drink, who right? don't drink alcohol yeah. invented the device that makes distilled alcohol. And and so mm. that was that was utilized yeah. by other traders right. who bought them and brought them over to their territory, and they made rum. And who were the people at the time who said, hey, this is pretty good? Well, I guess it would be all sorts of venturers and travelers, because ultimately the, the sugarcane stalks themselves and the still ended up into Europe. And so... When you get to the, about the era of Christopher Columbus, uh, one of the key possessions that he brought with him to the Caribbean on his first trip there to uh, you know, find the lost city of uh, El Dorado. His goal was to find the city of gold in, in the Americas. And when he went across and discovered the island of Hispaniola, he brought sugarcane with him. And now it had never existed in the Caribbean before that. We go down there now and you, th- you see sugarcane everywhere down there. Yeah. And you think that it was never there naturally. It was all and brought Florida. over by the Europeans right. in yeah. Florida. So that, that was a transplant. And uh-huh. what ended up happening, it's, it's kind of ironic that Columbus was trying to find the lost city of gold. But, you know, and he ended up sort of like abducting people and trying to get them to tell him where the city of gold was. And there wasn't one. So he eventually gave up and went back to, to Spain. And he had told the Queen of Spain that he was going to find the city of gold. That's why she gave him the money to do the expedition, which, hmm. which basically found the, the Western world. But seven, yes. within 70 years, the price of refined sugar per ounce became more valuable than the price of gold. So the ironic thing there was Columbus actually brought the gold with him. He just didn't know it. And that's why the monarchs of Europe took all the islands in the Caribbean, the French islands, the British islands, you know, the the Spanish, the Dutch islands, all were were grabbed by those monarchs because they could basically print money. And that's why the slave trade became big there because they were growing sugar. That was really the economic origin of this. And we still see this today, the geopolitics, the uh, fights that are going on right this minute over which countries have which minerals 
and whether China is going to cozy up to that country the most or the United States is. Sure. The minerals we need to the do very earth. important things. Well, yeah, it's all, about, it's all about resources. You know, the planet Earth is a, is a spaceship with about 800 million seats, and we have about 7 billion people on the planet. And so you got to think about what are all these resources going to, where are they all going to be? Uh, utilized. That's a big topic in politics for sure. So, but in rum, it, it's actually kind of interesting because many of the islands now aren't even producing fruit anymore, including sugarcane. Lots of them have stopped doing it because sort of the bottom fell out from that economically, that market, um, you know, in the late 1800s. And then, and then it came back again and then bottomed out again. So some of the islands utilize a lot of sugarcane and the ones that do then farm out molasses. They sell molasses to the other islands and, they, and people make rum there. In our right. case, we grow it right on the farm in Barbados. Oh, you do? We do, yeah. You have your own farm yeah, or you hire? Yeah. Oh, I see. Four Square Distillery, Richard Seals on Barbados. He's our master distiller. So wow. he grows the sugarcane on the property. And, and then sometimes when he doesn't have a high enough yield, he'll buy some Demerara molasses that he gets from Guyana, a special type of molasses. Huh. Is it, it organic? It's not organic. There's no um, consistent soil on these islands. It's not like they have volcanic? really great. Yeah, well, it's it's coral. So Are there chemicals in the growing of sugarcane that should concern us? Not necessarily, no. I think you have traditional... How about your, your sugarcane? No, no, I mean, not, we don't have anything that you're gonna, that's going to be an issue like pesticides and things like that. That's it's more like I mean. nitrogen-based fertilizers. Oh, no, I meant... But pesticides, no, it's it's very expensive to do that. You know, I mean, anything you're doing on an island, just move mm -hmm. the decimal point over to get any resource or equipment or... Mm -hmm you know, technology or technique there, it's very difficult. So Bailey Pryor of Real McCoy, I had a sense years ago when I was tasting rum that it was, it seemed very syrupy to me, yeah, over-sugared. most over rums are sweetened. Yeah. So, so yeah. it's kind of interesting. Rum was always a drier spirit, and people didn't start adding large amounts of sugar to it and other types of sweeteners until after about the 1940s. And there was a, a gentleman named Rafael Arroyo, who's sort of the grandfather of the modern form of distillation. He was really opposed to the development and use of multi-column stills. He thought that the best type of product, whether it was whiskey or rum, was being made in a pot still. Mm -hmm. And I completely agree with him because you just get incredible flavors from pot stills that you just cannot get from a column still. And so when people started doing large volume multi-column still products, you end up with a very highly refined product. It's very it's like stripped. medicinal, it's right? me yeah. yeah, it's basically grain alcohol. Neutral. You've made sugarcane vodka. It has yeah. really no flavor, no aroma, no components to it that are interesting. So, yeah. so they added sugar, they added flavors. Some rums even add artificial rum flavoring to it, like the cheapest rums. So the ones in the plastic bottle <laughs> yeah. on the bottom of the yeah. shelf, you might want to wow. think about that next That's time you pick up one thing. of those. Yeah. Yeah, so Matt and I actually got scared because we love drinking rum, and we researched some of the big brands, and they're loaded with like sugar and all the stuff that we didn't want to drink anymore. Yeah, so. and propylene glycol. That's the big one because propylene glycol is Anti Isn't that a rocket fuel? It's antifreeze. It's the yeah. stuff they spray on the f on the wings of airplanes when you're about to take off in a, in a snowstorm. Yeah, you yeah, can sure. even smell the sweetness mm -hmm. of it. When yeah. you're sitting in the plane, there's kind of an interesting sweet smell that yeah. from that mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah. They put that in all kinds of spirits, especially vodka, but they do put it in the cheaper rums. Yeah. And the reason why they do it is because it, it's a sweetener, but it has a thick mouthfeel to yeah, it. Right. So 
people go, oh, is this is so smooth because it's sweet. Yeah. How do you know and, which vodka doesn't have it? Uh, you have to do your research. Yeah. And there are websites now you that, that you it. can do yeah, this. Online, because we just Google it. And then can someone just tell me well, which one? Drecon.dk, D-R-E-C-O-N.dk is the one that tells you how much sugar there are. There's many websites that do this, by the way. But the European Union, it's illegal to use propylene glycol in any products in the European Union. That's not the case in the United States, so it's in everything here. How about in the Scandinavian countries? Scandinavian can't use it there as well. And, okay. and, and so this is the Danish, it's mm-hmm. a Danish gentleman who's uh, done this program for the government to study all of these products. Huh. So he's, he tests and he can tell how much sugar uh, people are adding to their rums. So he has this whole list of how much sugar. And there are some rums out there that I, have 96 grams of sugar per liter, yeah. which is, think of it this way, t- it's, it's a like cup soda. of sugar that you pour into, into one bottle. bottle. <laughs> it takes yeah. up about a third of the bottle. Yeah. It's insane, right? Yeah. And you wow. know it immediately. The minute you sip those, it okay. just yeah. tastes like... And you wonder why you get a headache. My rum, we don't do that, by the way. Let me just say <laughs> no, that. I know. Yes. Yes. That's, That's why, why we, we love like it. it. That's why I'm talking about it. You guys don't even talk about this. I know. So use a good quality rum. you got to use a good quality rum. You've got to have something... For a cocktail? Even though you've got all this other stuff in there, you don't have all that junk in there. Absolutely, but I may not have all that junk, but I can't taste the rum exactly because I've got all these other competing flavors. Exactly, and if you have a real rum that's just been barrel aged, like the real McCoy, you end up with really nice natural flavor components, and it cuts right through whatever mixer you're using. So if you're using fruit juice or you're using sodas or ginger beer, you can still taste the spirit, and it's lovely and balanced. And And that's why you like that cocktail so much. You need less like mixers and stuff too, with good good ingredients. You don't need to mask it with exactly. you to defend your your position. (laughs) You did a fabulous job. Thank you. Really, thanks for making a great product. Absolutely. Bailey Pryor of Real McCoy Rum, right right here in, I shouldn't say made here because the sugar cane is grown in Barbados. It's owned in Mystic, Connecticut. uh, Yes, in Mystic, Connecticut. Yep. And they have various aging steps depending on the the bottle that you get. Our cocktail they made, the Faith in Tiki, (laughs) is at (laughs) foodschmooze.org, one of the best cocktails I have had had ever we love the local we've got somebody really funny coming your way next please support your local food growers and food makers for an on-demand podcast delivery of the food schmooze party every week go to foodschmooze.org and you know we'll be right back This is the Food Schmooze Party, offering the richness of life and coming to you in Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and New York, including Westchester County, the east end of Long Island, the Hamptons, of course. The senior producer is Robin Doyon Aiken. And to hear the show on WNPR, it airs Thursdays at 3 at 9 and Saturdays at noon. Podcasts and our curated recommendations are always online at foodschmooze.org. Okay. You're in for a good time reading this hilarious book, The Raging Skillet, and seeing the play about it, having its world premiere now at Theater Works in Hartford. It's on through August 27th. The woman at the center of the memoir 
This play is Rossi, no first name, owner and executive chef of the Raging Skillet. That's a catering company in New York City. They do not do typical events. They do events on the wild side, like one in an old synagogue that's turned into a goth party space on the Lower East Side or in a factory in Queens. All I know is that I loved her memoir about becoming a chef, starting out in a Jewish Orthodox home. Her childhood recipes are sensational. And as you're about to hear, so are her adult recipes. And as you're about to hear, Rossi, welcome to the Food Schmooze Party. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Oh, my goodness. So what does it feel like to stand back and see your life, your memoir, come to life on a stage. What's that experience like, seriously? It's a very surreal experience. Ever since it opened, people have been asking me, how do you feel, how do you feel? And I've been having an enormous problem answering that question Mm -hmm. because how I feel is so huge and beyond me that I can't even get to the core of it. I think I need a year and some therapy to go back and look back and tell you how I feel. You're lucky I have a fake therapy degree. So <laughs> well, I might, maybe we could spend a couple of hours talking after the show. Okay. But, I mean, it's so surreal. I'm looking up on the stage, and I see a woman playing my mother and a woman playing me, and they're flashing images of my mom and my grandparents. And So I would have to say, in the 70s, late 70s and early 80s, I experimented with drugs. But I never, ever got to try anything that feels this intense and wonderful. So if there was something like this, I probably would think it would be very popular. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Great description. Um, We try to make the show be like that, as a matter of fact. Um, So here's my question about this struggle that people have about the difference between what's real and unreal, the difference between fiction and nonfiction. Um, Some of us think that fiction is real, that it is coming from a place in people while details are made up, represent the human experience. And other people feel you've got to stick to facts. We've seen authors get in trouble for this (laughs) because they get confused about it, or maybe they have a different idea. I don't care whether it's exactly strictly according to your life because... It's almost like an author letting go of the story, right? Right, right Rossi? Right. right. So if you had to do that a little bit, let go? Well, I'll tell you the truth. There's a lot of reasons why I wrote the book. But mostly it was because you just can't make this stuff up. I mean, I've had a really, truly crazy life, and my mother was insane. I could write a 100 books about my mother. And so there really never came a moment when I had to embellish or think of something cool to say, it was very much the opposite. There are so many crazy <laughs> things that happened in my house. I never run out of stories. Yeah. I'm always waiting for the moment that I'll run out of material. So, so I have written fiction, but it's not nearly as good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so explain just quickly where you grew up at the very beginning where your story starts. Well, I grew up on the Jersey Shore, and I grew up a very odd combination of let's say, lowly Orthodox Jewish and white trash. So I'm probably the only person you're going to meet that can honestly say I have eaten kishka and grits. So <laughs> sort of sum it up like that. Um, so it's an Orthodox household, mm-hmm. and your mother, as you describe in your memoir, discovers the microwave and everything goes to hell. Right. Um, I mean, everything that was real, that, that simmered for hours, is right. like out the window. And you start sprinkling in recipes in your memoir based on 
where you are in your life. And right. these recipes get to be very, very good. In the beginning, they might be good, but they're, you know, they're kind of kid friendly. So um, I'm right. looking at this one that says Snickers and potato chip casserole. Uh-huh. Did well, you think about that? That's a recipe I created when I was 13 years old. Mm-hmm. So you would think that that's a horrible recipe, or how good could a recipe be that a 13-year-old with no experience cooking created it? But I've been serving that at weddings I cater. I mean, when I started recipe testing, when I did the book, I had to recipe test it. So I kind of tweaked the recipe a little bit. You don't cook the butter on high, you cook it on low, this kind of thing. But I've been serving it, and people are going nuts for it. Awesome. And in the play, they pass it out to the audience, and the audience Ooh, goes nuts that's for awesome. it. So, <laughs> so those recipes aren't really so bad. Can I say it's a couple Snickers bars, some sweet butter, marshmallows, and uh, potato chips. And it's, uh-huh. you know, the, the, we could I argue it. it's the way it comes together. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no. um, so from your mother at the table, what do you think you took? Well, my mom used to cook these Ashkenazi Hungarian dishes, like passed down from the Ice Age. I mean, every time we came home, there'd be onions simmering and stews and things. And I honestly have had relationships that were shorter than some of these dishes took to cook. But we were like kids in the 70s. Like, we didn't want to come home and eat goulash and chicken paprika and Hungarian cabbage and noodles. We wanted pizza and spaghetti and meatballs and cheeseburgers and, you know, normal American 70s food. And so we were kind of horrified. But when my mom got her first microwave, suddenly it was like all of that was gone and replaced with astronaut food. Like she dumped something in a bowl and mixed water, and two seconds later, here's dinner. And so we realized that we had a good thing, and we were spent so much time kvetching about it. We should have just been like kissing her tushy. And so everybody was so bored. And it's like if your stomach is bored, you know, your soul is bored. So I mean, I saw that there were some frozen Lenders bagels in the freezer, and we had some leftover Passover cheese, and we always had ragu tomato sauce because my mother got it like ten cans for a dollar, or ten <laughs> jars for a dollar, or something. So we had like hundreds of jars of ragu tomato sauce. And so I figured if I dumped the sauce on the bagels and covered it with the cheese, we only had three spices in the house ever. One was dry oregano, one was paprika, and one was guilt. So I figure, you know, sprinkle <laughs> the oregano, hold the guilt and paprika, shove it in the oven, and so comes dinner time, my mom's serving, you know, this horrible microwave crap, and I pull these things out of the oven, and my family's astonished. They're kind of in shock because we forgot we even had an oven, and they're just blown away. It's not like it was such an exciting <laughs> thing, but it was hot from the oven food once again. And yeah. then all of a sudden, mm. everyone in my family started being really nice to me. Yeah. And I was like, whoa. A chef is born. Yeah. I'm like, seriously. Everyone's kissing my tushy. I really like this. Yeah. So did that seriously, that newfound power, send you in the direction of, I think I'll keep this up, and maybe I, I have some talent here, maybe I can do this? Well, I didn't have any idea if I had any talent, and I had not a single thought about ever doing it professionally. But I did start having these parties for my little stoner friends in high school where I would serve my weird creations, and usually one of the ingredients would be Snickers bars. And I found Mm -hmm. it made me immensely popular. 
Um, most of the things I create in that era, you really had to smoke marijuana to appreciate, I have to admit. But well, it was not all of them. I guess. So this is Chef Rossi, who is author of the paperback memoir, The Raging Skillet, and it is now a play at TheaterWorks in Hartford, and that runs through August 27th, so you want to jump on that. We have a link for tickets and information about the book, too, which I adored reading at foodschmooze.org. The stage play is by Jacques Lamar and is directed by John Simpkins, and it is a world premiere at TheaterWorks, so congratulations to you. There's a a hot plate Hebrew nationals and pasta in here. (laughs) Um, On and on it goes. So there are so many details about your life. We can't get into all of them. There's a special friend that you make. But always, it seems to me, you were the one who was outside the box, Um, How did you get comfortable being there? Some people aren't comfortable being there. Well, I figured out because we moved around a lot as a kid, and everyone in my family, my sister and my brother, we we all got bullied because we were always the new kids in the school. And we were always wearing this horrible clothes because my mother always got our clothes on sale, so everyone else had nice clothes, and we'd show up with these Kmart blue light specials. Do you remember Kmart blue light specials? Yeah, sure. Yeah, people were always trying to bully us. And I figured out that... I could defend myself with humor. So, you know, I would go to school, and here I am dressed so badly, but I would take my lunch out and put it on the table, and everyone else would have these beautiful sandwiches. My mother would send me with this deconstructed sandwich where it would be like the cheese and the bread and the mustard, and you had to assemble it yourself. (laughs) You know, kind of breed ingenuity with the kids. Like, no wonder I became a chef. That was maybe embarrassing enough, but then everything would be wrapped in a note. So the mustard stolen from McDonald's would be like, have this mustard and know your mother loves you. And the bread would be wrapped in. This is more than I had as a child. And the cheese would be like children in Auschwitz would have eaten this for a week, you know. So I'm pulling out these notes, and everyone's like, you made this up. You made those notes yourself, and they're, but they're going hysterical. And so nobody wanted to mess with me. They were too busy laughing. Yeah. Um, what would you say is the first serious relationship that you have? Ooh, that would be a love affair relationship? Yeah, romantic. I had dated guys a lot in high school because I was, you know, that's a thing to do. But I didn't realize that I was gay. I, didn't, I had no idea. But I had this great friendship with this woman who looked like a punk rock Audrey Hepburn. Right. She was so sexy. And one night we're out clubbing, and I said very innocently, with no, I mean, I'm so naive, you have to understand, I had no idea what this meant. I said, you know, I had this dream I kissed you. And she said, oh, really? And then we started making out. And I thought I was going to pass out. It suddenly woke up my universe. And then she left me in the bathroom. So, of course, the most important moments in my life have to happen in a bathroom. I don't know if that's a Jewish In the bar somewhere. (laughs) Um, She left me there, and I'm like, I'm having my whole life flash by. I'm like, mm. that's why I had to watch The Bionic Woman every Wednesday, and that's why I had to bring my teacher an apple. (laughs) Who was that prairie woman doctor that people... (laughs) Um, Okay, so amazing and you end up cooking in Provincetown you end up cooking on water you cooked on water as a boat chef and you know that's a whole experience because I have a terrible problem getting seasick yeah me too how in the world did you end up doing this truly professionally and as a professional now during your sort of outside the box catering company called the raging skillet also by the way go ahead I was a bartender 
one of those old school kind of bartenders. We light your cigarette, you know, back when you could smoke in a bar. And we tell a joke, and we know everyone's name. So I always had regulars. I would have the same 30 or 40 regulars that would come every day, and I would keep them entertained. But they would stay, and the kitchen would close, and they'd be drinking, and there'd be no food. So I started going into the kitchen looking for things in the walk-in to turn into something they could eat so they wouldn't get drunk and throw up on my bar. There were always corn chips, and there was always some sort of cheese, and there was always a way to invent a nacho. So I started doing, like, the nachos of the night. And if there was buffalo chicken, I would Mm. cut it up and throw it on the nachos. Mm. If there was meatballs, you know, whatever it was. And they loved it, of course, because what would you love to eat when you're drunk at midnight? You'd love buffalo chicken nachos. But it started really jazzing me up. Like, I felt this kind of buzzing solar plexus feeling that I would get, like, when I wrote something or painted something, you know, a really good feeling. I thought, well, I'm kind of tired of talking to drunks all the time. Like, maybe I could do this instead. And it really took off. It did. I mean, it was really hard. In the 80s, it was so unwelcome to women. Mm. Nobody wanted to see a woman in the kitchen, which to this day I never understood. Like, you always want your mother's home cooking or your wife's home cooking, so why is it such an abomination for a woman to be in the kitchen? There were some pioneers that started breaking things down, like Alice Waters and, of course, Julia Child, but really it was nobody wanted me there. I would go to these big companies, and they didn't want to get sued, so instead of saying no or firing me, they would just do anything they could to make me quit. They would put me through terrible torture. You know, it made me madder and madder, and the madder I got, the less I was willing to quit. And eventually, you know, got past it and was able to start my own business. But it took a while. Hmm. Do you think you'll stay? People are always telling me that my business would be a lot larger if I would get out of the kitchen because the best salesperson I have is me, and so we're constantly booking events. But when I'm in the kitchen cooking, you know, I'm not talking to people and we're not booking events. But if I remove myself from the kitchen completely, then that's the end of how I get my yayas. So I need to kind of keep my joy happening, too. So I sit in the corner, the table right by the window like the Queen of England, and I make the sauces and marinades and dips, and everyone else is frying and dicing and sautéing and suffering. And I'm like, you know, having my little yayas up there. Nice. Right now, I'm still kind of got my fingers in the sauce, you know? Yeah, I do. Well, you certainly can write uh, like a dream. Yeah. I love the memoir. It's called The Raging Skillet, The True Life Story of Chef Rossi, a memoir with recipes. There are recipes from childhood to adulthood in this book and um, really enjoyed them and your story. It's that winding road that, that many people take to get to a place. It's wonderful. It's funny as, as can be. So, uh, And also a play about it now at Theatre Works in Hartford running through August 27th. And we have a link for tickets, information, and the book at foodschmooze.org. Thank you so much, Chef Rossi. Oh, I had a blast. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. We're on WNPR Thursdays at 3 and Saturdays at noon weekdays. Listen for my 60-second Food Schmoozes. Our slogan, never eat more than you can lift. In New Haven, I'm Faith Middleton. Thanks for listening to the podcast on your schedule. And when you need a little party in your life, 
We're here and online all the time at foodschmooze.org. And, of course, also on Facebook at Faith Middleton Food Schmooze.